Oh, yes. We actually have, give me one second. Ms. Flaherty, um, you have been so patient. Yes, we are looking for one attendee, um, I believe, Mr. Khan. So in the meantime, Mr. Khan, we are going to have Ms. Flaherty come forward to testify. And Mr. Khan, if you're available, please accept the invitation and we will have you testify after Ms. Flaherty. Ms. Flaherty, it is wonderful to see you. Welcome and please proceed. Thank you so much, Rep. McCarthy Vehi, Senator Anwar, Senator Summers, Representative Claire Destitria, all the members of the Public Health Committee. My name is Kathy Flaherty. I am the Executive Director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project. For those of you who don't know me yet, hi. Um, and uh, you'll probably see me a lot. Um, CLRP represents people who are eligible for mental health services from the State Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Um, I submitted my written testimony. It is finally available online, so you can link to it and, and read it now or later. Um, but I think one of the things I can add for all of you today is I think I'm the only person who's sitting in this room who's had electroshock. You've had people testifying remotely who've had it, but to my knowledge, <laughs> I'm the only person here in this room who has actually had it. And what I will tell you, despite what you've heard um, from some of the people, including a judge who observed it, is just because it seems like it's peaceful doesn't mean it's not violent. The whole purpose of ECT is to send an electric current through someone's brain to induce a seizure. The only reason our bones don't break, our jaws don't get crushed, is because they give us muscle relaxers and they put, put us under anesthesia. And the problem, and, and I'm sure you'll ask me questions, so I'm just gonna say a bunch of things that might sound a little disjointed. Um, but this whole bill is about changing the involuntary ECT procedures in this state. What you all need to know is that if you're dealing with a patient who is capable of giving informed consent, that consent has to be reobtained every 30 days. The, a lot of our systems depend on checks and balances. We should have the same checks and balances for all people. I don't know why it seems to be okay that we're willing to say that for some people, we only need to do that check and balance every three months. If ECT is working as well as the proponents say it does, people's capacity to consent to it can change within that 90 days. And if they're capable of giving informed consent and they say no, that court order, if you have passed this bill that you wanna change it to and give them the 90 days, that person can spend two months getting shock against their will. There are people in this state who have received hundreds of involuntary shock treatments. At a certain point, when do you say continuing to throw an electric current through your brain maybe is not the most beneficial, less intrusive treatment? Um, I want to add a couple things because I was corresponding with Sarah. She needs you to understand the long-term consequences. The FDA requires doctors to warn patients that long-term safety and effectiveness of ECT has not been demonstrated. 
um, the evidence, she is the evidence of what happens when a patient goes home. Um, and they have no idea still after decades, how much microstructural damage is caused because like all forms of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it's only diagnosed when you're dead and they have an autopsy. Um, this bill, obviously CLRP cannot support it. CLRP will not support extending the time period. Um, Excuse me, Ms. Flaherty, your time is all completed. Thank you. I have several suggested changes for you in terms of what the law should be, and I am happy to answer any questions. I also have with me um, Tom Barrett, who is CLRP's counsel emeritus, who can really talk to you about the testimony of the bill. I mean, the, the legislative history of the bill, because um, what it used to be that there were no time limits on involuntary ECT until the law was changed to put in that 45-day time period, and all the stakeholders agreed to that, and Tom can testify to that if you are willing to have him come up. Thank you, Ms. Flaherty. Uh, Senator Anwar. Uh, thank you. Uh, Kathy, is it okay if I call you Kathy? Absolutely. Yes, fine. I call you Kathy. I, I insist on you calling me Attorney Flaherty. In fact, I would look for my uncle if you did. <laughs> so um, uh, first, uh, if you want to just finish your testimony, because we cut you short, then I have some specific questions. If you can keep that to a couple of minutes so that I don't lose my time. I would just, the, the only thing I'd like to add is there are some people for whom ECT works. Just like when it comes to psychiatric medication, there are some people for whom ECT works. I had a course, and honestly, it was either four treatments or six treatments. I don't know because I don't remember. Um, they gave it to me when they brought me to the Institute of Living after I unbuckled my seatbelt while I was driving my car and drove into a light pole. Light poles are hollow. They're only concrete at the bottom but like it wasn't a telephone pole. I knocked the light pole down and I had to pay the state of Connecticut something like $1,100, that was fun. But they're like, we can't wait for the next medication we wanna try to maybe work because the stuff I was taking clearly wasn't working. So they're like, we wanna try ECT. And at that point, I didn't care whether I lived or died. So I was like, fine, do it. So did I consent to that first treatment? Yes. Um, in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have consented. Um, they probably would have won if there was a hearing in probate court. I mean, that's what you guys really need to know is that nine times out of 10, the facilities win. So it's not like the, you know, the judges have to show and the facility has to show that a legal standard is met. It can't just be, you know, a doctor's opinion. And I think that was why I was so horrified when I saw the first draft of the bill, and I was delighted to learn that that wasn't actually the committee's intent. Thank you so much. Uh, so, Kathy, um, uh, we've talked about this two, three years ago. We brought it because of a, a child who's being impacted negatively from this bill. And I, I respect where you come from. I respect that you've been uh, a very important force to make sure that there's a protection for the people in our state. But this bill is hurting somebody, and you've had the chance to interact with the mom, but you've not necessarily had the chance to interact with a child and seen what has happened. And um, and then I'm I'm and then you're you have so much empathy, but but I feel sometimes I wish maybe perhaps we can have you meet the child and see how it does to uh, what it does to him. No, I'm not saying 
he shouldn't have ECT. Like if he, if the court finds that he meets the legal standard, because it sounds like he, because of his other illness, and he's really not the person they're usually using ECT on. Let's be frank about that. The people who are getting ECT are people with psychiatric diagnoses, not people usually with Down syndrome. Like, so th there's something, there's something there. But I imagine that because of his other disability, it sounds to me as if he doesn't have the legal capacity to give informed consent himself, okay? I'm trying to figure out, because I don't know, but the facility that wants to perform the ECT has to go to probate court and demonstrate to the satisfaction of the judge that they meet the requirements of the standard, which is that, hold on, <laughs> I want to look it up because I want to do it accurate. Um, that after the hearing, such court finds that the patient is incapable of informed consent and there is no other less intrusive beneficial treatment. Okay. If they are able to satisfy the judge of that, they will get an order that will be good for 45 days. They will be able to do a course of treatment. I wish Tom could could come up in a chair because um, I'd like him to talk about this, but when they first put in a limit of a 30 days, okay, uh, or, or we're going to put a limit, the voluntary consent has to be given every 30 days. For the involuntary, there were people who pushed that that should be 30 days too, because why would we have it be any different? But then the psychiatrist came in and they said, we usually do treatments over the course of four weeks. So if we have any delay in starting, we wouldn't be able to do the full course of treatment. And that's why all the stakeholders agreed that 45 days was enough. Now, why does it have to go to not? Just I'm just no, trying to figure out I, how I, is he being hurt. If I may just uh, request yeah. you because there's a limited time and I want to yeah. make sure. Limited time. We've been waiting all day. <laughs> No, no, uh, for, for me, because I want my colleagues to have that opportunity. I don't want to take it away from them. Um, I, 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 what would you say to the mom who actually just explained what of a difficulty it is for them to be able to do it every uh, 45 days where they're losing and then getting all of that information, waiting for the treatment to be delayed and then, and then the child getting worse? So... How would we reflect to that? I mean, I, I, I just said they're too bad. It's no, like, how would they be enough answer? What I would say is I would put it on the facility. If they know they are going to have to do it again in 45 days, don't wait till day 44 to bring the new petition. You do it at day 30, which gives plenty of time for the probate court to hold the next hearing. Do I hear the frustration with having to repeatedly go back to court? Yes, I do. But I also think that you need to know is that when we, if you look at the statute, the current statutes that we have regarding involuntary um, medication and involuntary ECT, when it's involuntary medication, the probate court order can actually be good for 120 days, but that's because the court doesn't actually make the order that they can just give the medication. The court appoints a conservator who is a substitute decision maker with specific authority to consent to psychiatric medication. And the facility is supposed to go through the full informed consent process with that conservator 
Sometimes the conservator consents, to be honest, it's probably 95% of the time and they're a rubber stamp. But every, t every once in a while, you get a conservator who does their job properly. And when they listen to the conserved person, they listen to the facility, they ask questions about the risks and benefits of treatment and no treatment, sometimes they say no. But you don't do that in forced DCT cases. If the court finds those things, the court just issues the order, nobody's given informed consent, and the electroshock is just done. I just want to add, uh, when this law was passed, there wasn't a segment of a specific group of uh, Down syndrome children who have a, <laughs> an illness that can get better with this, which has been shown, it has been published, and now that segment of the children in our state are suffering. And and I will stop here. I, I'm sure there are my colleagues who may have questions. And I, I don't like children who have developmental disorders to be suffering because somebody else had a bad experience. And, and we want to make sure there's a protection in place for everybody. But sometimes that protection is actually causing these children to suffer. So again, uh, that's a uh, a different I, conversation, but I'll I'll give an opportunity to my colleagues if they have a question or comment. Thank you, Senator Amwar. Next, uh, Representative Carpino to be followed by Representative Zupkis and Senator Mark. Thank you, ma'am. I I am neither a doctor nor a physician, so it would be inappropriate for me to judge whether or not shock treatment were appropriate for an individual patient. I trust that their medical providers and, and their team are the best ones to make that decision. But I am a member of this committee who has grave concerns with shock therapy. And your previous testimony was very clear. We're talking about electrical impulses to the brain of someone who does not consent, particularly in light of the marginalized groups of individuals who've been subjected to this in the past. And, and my goal here at this late hour is to not, um, to not give a history lesson. I understand the concerns. I've been here all day. I've heard the testimony. My question to you is, is very specific. Is there any positive that would result from this change other than it being more convenient for some families to receive the treatment they're choosing? It's hard for me to find it. I, I'll be straight up. I mean, I agree with Senator Onwar. I don't want any child to needlessly suffer or be caused pain, but Protections were put in the law, not just because a few people had bad experiences, but because a lot of people had bad experiences. And shock without adequate safeguards violates the right to be secure in one's person. It is a massive intrusion on liberty. Um, and it intrudes on your bodily integrity in a really pretty profound way um and in, in you know intrudes on your mental integrity i mean if you just think about your capacity and your brain and who how that helps make you who you are as a person it is designed to change that i would say and i i i, I if the if this committee was concerned about a particular group of people who in the committee's opinion 
were so benefited by this treatment that perhaps that particular group of people should have a different law applied to them. I, I would perhaps explore that, but I also think it's a terrible idea to make different laws based on different people's diagnoses. Um, we don't do that. And we have, or we shouldn't do that. And, and I appreciate that. And I want to be very clear. If this particular treatment works for some individuals, I, I believe that they should have adequate access to that. But my concerns are qualified physicians and the head of a hospital making these decisions for some individuals. And I appreciate you always giving a voice to some who might not be able to find their way um, to the General Assembly to share their their views and their experiences and and I thank you because I have serious concerns about this. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Representative Carpino. I'm going to go next to our ranking member, Senator Summers. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. I know it's been a long day for you. It has. Um, I, you know, I have grave concerns about extending the time limit um, in which someone would have the ability to con either continue ECT under a you know, civil involuntary commitment order uh, or um, extending it for, for 90 days. That That is, I have real concerns about that. But what you heard tonight was there is a very small segment of the population that are children that have Down syndrome that need this uh, or appear to need this treatment uh, for their well-being. And... I didn't hear that they couldn't get the treatment. What I heard was it's inconvenient. And I, I, I take that lightly as a mother. I know that things are not necessarily convenient and, and it's an added step that you have to take to go to probate every 45 days to renew uh, the order to be able to get this type of treatment. Is there anything, but I didn't hear the children are not able to get the treatment. Um, and I, I think we have to be cautious, and as difficult as this may sound, I don't think we can legislate for, for a really small population versus the greater good in some, in some respect. And I can see, based on the history that we have here with Whiting Forensic and the civil commitment, that it would make it a lot easier for that institution to be able to go to probate and get a 90-day order for which we will have people in our custody, under our care, possibly continuing with ECT without their consent. I have a real issue with that. So is there anything that you can see that could be done because you have a lot of experience in the probate court, maybe this really belongs to judiciary, that could be an expedited process for those children that are under the care of a physician that need this specialized treatment every 45 days where there could almost be a, um, a system in which they don't ever have to worry that they're not going to get it. I like your idea of just going earlier, but we all know that the, the probate courts are really busy. Could you think of a way that we could streamline their ability to get the probate judge to order um, the, the next 45 days? I would have to think about that i don't uh, after a very long day of sitting here 
Um, I, there's no way I can answer that question on You're the really spot. You're creative, so I'm sure you'll come up with a way. I could try. Not right now, but right. if you could get back to us. No, I mean, I think one of the things that I just would like to point out is, you know, there are times where facilities bring petitions and have brought simultaneous position, p- petitions to probate court for forced medication and forced electroshock. Remember, for forced electroshock, it's supposed to be no other less intrusive beneficial treatment. And so Judge Marino talked about how the fact that sometimes he denies them because they haven't tried the other things first. We dealt with a case at a different facility that wasn't his court where the court actually granted both orders. And that actually makes no sense. It should never have happened. And guess what? We appealed that and we won on appeal because it didn't meet the legal standard. But by that time, the shock had already been done. And then how do you take that back? You can't. You know, probate court judges have to do a lot of work and they have to make a lot of difficult decisions about a lot of difficult things. But sometimes they make mistakes. And because of the way our law is, where we don't have an automatic stay pending appeal, which is something we should have, um, it, you know, people are subjected to these involuntary treatments that they do not want, that they have not consented to, um, and they're imposed against their will. So it's just, it is, you know, the hard thing, you know, listening to some of the testimony here today where some people have said it feels like torture because it really, you know, we don't intentionally put electricity through people. <laughs> like Usually we refer to that as electrical injury. Um, so people have framed this as a some kind of medical treatment that does things, but they don't know how or why it works. They don't know how or why it goes bad. Um, and it has a lot of adverse effects. I'm delighted for this young man that it's worked for him. And it sounds like you've met him. I would welcome the opportunity to listen to him. But like Senator Summers said, I haven't heard that they, he hasn't been able to access it at all, that there have sometimes been these delays. And maybe there is a way to come up with a framework to ensure that for someone who needs maintenance, but I don't know what it, I don't know what that is. So I'll have to think about that. I thank you for that. And I think it's it, the point that you bring out especially in light of uh, the history that we have, is the checks and balances are really important. I would like to find a way uh, that we could help those who need um, a maintenance dosage, I'll call it, or a weekly dosage of ECT uh, without um, maybe the additional burden of the 45 days. But but I, I really feel strongly that we cannot extend it just based on that small population when there are so many others that could have unintended consequences because of that extension. And um, if you can help be creative, I'd love to work on that with you. Okay, thank you. Uh, and just to point out, if he were able to consent, they would have to get that consent every 30 days. So. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Summers. Uh, Representative Zupkis to be followed by Senator Martz, Representative Berger-Gervallo, and Representative Kitt. Representative Zupkis. Thank you, Madam Chair, and uh, thank you, Ms. Flaherty, for coming. I'm not going to reiterate because I strongly agree with Representative Carpino and Senator Summers. Um, I, uh, you know, none, I don't believe there's one person sitting here, listening here, wherever they are, would ever want a child to not get services that are needed for that child to make them better. 
Um, I just, the whole consent piece, um, I don't know anything about this child. I don't know if they have parents or not, but to me, why would a parent not give parental consent uh, to have involuntary or forced treatment? This or anything is unacceptable to me. And uh, I want to thank you for coming coming for uh, bringing these things forward. And I appreciate what you had to say. And I do hope to hear from you and your suggestions. Um, I'm, I don't even know uh, why someone would have to go to probate court. Um, and maybe that's just my ignorance to this type of treatment. But um, to me, it should be consent and parental consent uh, and never forced on anyone. I don't care if it's a doctor or whom. Uh, but I agree with you, and I thank you for uh, coming here and testifying and sharing. Thank you, Representative Zofkis. And I, I do want to address the question you asked earlier of somebody who doesn't live in Connecticut, um, so didn't know what our laws here are in Connecticut. Um, electroshock is something that can be done with the informed written consent of a patient, um, so that is one way it gets done. But if the person is not capable and this is the language that's directly from the current law. If it's determined by the head of the hospital and two qualified physicians that the patient has become incapable of giving informed consent, shock therapy may be administered upon order of the probate court if, after hearing, such court finds that the patient is incapable of informed consent and there is no other less intrusive beneficial treatment. An order of the probate court authorizing the administration of shock therapy pursuant to the subsection shall be effective for not more than 45 days. Um, that is current law, but prior to 2003, there was no time limit on those probate court orders. Um, they would be issued and people would be involuntarily shocked for any length of time because there was no requirement that there be a time limit. There was a decision made after conversation with all the stakeholders to put that time at 45 days. And so it's just not clear to me why 20 years later, all of a sudden that compromise is no longer acceptable. Thank you. Thank you for enlightening me. And I appreciate your, uh, your understanding and, and your uh, knowledge of all of this. Thank you. You're welcome. Just uh, so everyone knows, I just want to say, there is a, attached to my testimony uh, an article that was written by Gina Texera, who's an attorney at CLRP, who brought that appeal that I was telling you about before, um, where she explored Connecticut law and treatment without consent cases. So it is worth, um, it might be worth reading, especially anybody who's a lawyer. So, Thank you, Representative Zupkis. We have Senator Marks to be followed by Representative Berger-Gervallo, Representative Kitt, and Representative Parker. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Through you, um, I, I have had patients who have had electric shock therapy, and they said it, it, it's completely changed their lives, and it was the best therapy that they had. It's what um, turns their mental illness around. Um, but my, my question is, and so maybe this is for judiciary, like Senator Summers said, I don't understand why a mother, and that mother that testified tonight was one of the... Um, most moving testimonies that I heard tonight. Why the mother, she must be the conservator power of attorney of her child, why that is not an informed consent? Why she can't consent 
to have this treatment for her child. Why the hospital administrators have to say that he can't have, he can't consent. Because I'm sure she could, if he needed to have his tonsils out, she could consent to having his tonsils out. Why can't she consent to this therapy? Thank you for the question. Would, can I indulge the committee to see if, if Tom could come up and maybe supplement my answer um, in the hope of giving you a more complete answer this evening? Um, would you be willing to allow that? So, Kathy, usually at the end of every hearing, I invite anyone who's in the room who hasn't signed up to testify. Since we're so close, we have a few people who signed up and are still waiting. Um, and I, I, you know, we're adjusting okay. still okay. to the rules actually with the if, hybrid. I don't fine. even know. We need to... I'm going write a note to add to this if I get something wrong. What's interesting is, is that just by virtue of being a conservator, conservators are not allowed to consent to certain kinds of treatment. You, a conservator that you have for other medical treatment does not, is not allowed to consent to psychiatric medication unless there's a petition brought in probate court that awards them the specific authority to consent to psychiatric medication because there is a recognition that psychiatric medication and psychiatric treatment is significantly more intrusive than other medical treatment. That's the law in Connecticut. It's been the law for as long as I've known what the law in Connecticut is. Um, Tom may be able to supplement that answer. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Marks, and thank you for your answer, Clarity. Next, we have Representative Berger Javallo to be followed by Representative Kitt. Thank you, Madam Chair. I'm actually going to do a thing that we don't usually do, and I'm going to say I'm going to be brief, and I'm going to be brief because uh, Senator Summers actually articulated most of what I wanted to say. Um, I will just add to that. I, I think that really what we've come down to here is we're looking at two, two particular goals. Um, we want to fast track informed consent for those who need it. We want to be able to keep the checks and balances. I know that you're exhausted and can't necessarily answer questions about what that looks like. Um, and when I was feeling a little bit more awake, I was saying to myself, well, what if we add another um, qualified physician? Um, I, I know that there are ideas that are here on, on this side of the room that um, we would love to be able to run by you, but I would just like to reiterate that we would seriously value whatever contribution you may have at a later um, somewhat rested point in time. I appreciate the opportunity to give you input when I have had more food, more drink, <laughs> and some sleep. Oh, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Rapper Javallo. And I think we, we all appreciate the opportunity when we've had the same, but I, I agree. Um, next, we have Representative Kitt of Fairfield and Trumbull Representative, and then to be followed by Representative Parker. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. Um, actually, I will also be brief because my question had to do with conservators. And Ms. Flaherty, you answered my question there as to why we don't allow conservators to do this. Um, and you mentioned that you had suggestions for improving this bill, and I look forward to reading that in your written testimony. And um, is one of those recommendations perhaps um, developing a psychiatric conservator program? No. <laughs> the short answer to that, frankly, is no, because I think arguably we have a lot of conservators already. 
um, in the state of Connecticut who are appointed to do some of these things. And the frustration that we see, and this is where I have to give my usual disclaimer. CLRP represents people who are eligible for mental health services from the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. They serve 100,000 unique people each year. We represent like a thousand. So like a tiny percent. So like people who are getting what they need from the system are not calling a law office to get help. But the people who call us who are not happy have conservators who maybe rubber stamp what the because the, the probate court has issued standards for conservators. And I actually linked to them in my my testimony. There are things conservators are supposed to do, like talk to the conserved person, review the person's medical records, talk to the facility. But we have seen cases where the facility gets the order from probate court, faxes something to the conservator, says sign this, and the conservator faxes something back with the signature authorizing the medication. That's not compliance with the statute, and it's virtually impossible to challenge any of that. So, no, <laughs> I do not think establishing a psychiatric conservatorship program is uh, the way forward. Um, we have other ideas, but not that. Well, I look forward to reading those, and I want to thank you for sharing your story and for the work you do and for giving a voice to the people who don't really have a voice aren't able to come here. So I look forward to hearing from more from you as we move this bill. You will. I promise. Thank you very much, Representative Kit. And think bad and clean up is Representative Parker. Perhaps, actually, we may come back to Senator Armour. Thanks for being with us all day. Not a physician, not a doctor, not a lawyer, so bear with me. Um, I'm wondering if there is a difference between someone who is not giving consent, chooses to not give consent, but still has the procedure done anyway, and someone who is deemed unable to give consent because of whatever reason and still has the procedure done anyways. Maybe I'll stop there with my first part of the question. Is that a distinction? I think that that is an interesting question. And what I will tell you from like my personal experience, both as a patient um, in psychiatry for the better part of 20 years um, and being a lawyer as well, is questions don't come up about your capacity to give consent as long as you are agreeing with the recommendations of your psychiatrist. It's only when you start to challenge the psychiatrist that questions start getting raised about your capacity to give informed consent. I see a skeptical look on your face, but that is the reality of psychiatry, which is probably different than the practice of medicine in a lot of other fields. But that is the reality of our experiences. It is an experience I have had, and it is an experience that many of the people you heard from today have had. Um, and the experience you'll hear from a lot of other people over the course of the session when we're talking about bills related to mental health. I appreciate you sharing that. And maybe this will be food for thought as we continue working on this. It seems like then there is a distinction between these potentially two different groups of people. I appreciate how you're saying about when that comes up or not, but would it be possible to have a policy that applies to people who are not able to give? Because it seems like what we're really trying to avoid is someone who would want to not give consent, being having this force upon them. That feels different to me than someone who is deemed not able to give consent. And at one point, yeah. it's a decision to do this procedure by well-informed, reasonable folks. And then presumably that is unlikely to change over the course of 45 to 60 to 90 days. I can see where in the first case, someone might 
want to withdraw their consent. And if it was forced upon them, that could be problematic. So is there a way to potentially treat these two different groups differently? So in the case of a young person who's deemed unable to give consent, the difference between 45 and 60 and 90 is maybe not that big a deal versus someone who might say, no, I've had enough. I don't want to give any more. Maybe this is a situation you would have found yourself in. And therefore we do want to ensure that after 45, between 45 and 90, we have that sort of release valve. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And what I would say is, and again, I don't have the, I don't like talking about statutes when I don't have the book in front of me because I want to make sure I'm getting it right. But that we do something somewhat similar when we're talking about involuntary psychiatric medication. There is, we actually do have different legal standards that have to be met if the person is capable of giving informed consent but says no. A person's incapable of informed consent and then a person who is capable of giving consent and consent. So I think there could, that might be a way forward, but I think we really need to do some crafting and I have no doubt that judiciary would have to be involved in this. Um, so, but I, I, that may be the way. Thank you for helping me start to understand that. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Representative Parker. Representative Rader to be followed by Senator Amar. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, thank you for sitting here all day and um, listening to all the other testimony before your opportunity to do so. Um, and this has been so enlightening for me um, as a new legislator, so thank you for that too. Um, I'm also, uh, I've been working with a constituent who is also um, involved with NAMI, and she was really informative. I sat through um, uh, a group uh, presentation, and the term came up called, and I'm going to probably say this wrong, anosognosia. Yeah. And that is the, um, it's quote unquote, lack of insight is a symptom of severe mental illness experienced by some that impairs a person's ability to understand and perceive his or her illness. Um, it is for this, it is the single largest reason why people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder refuse medication or do not seek treatment. Without awareness of their illness, refusing treatment appears rational, no matter how clear the need for treatment might be to others. And so this term kept coming up in my head again when we've been talking today um, about consent and to what Representative um, Parker just re referenced. And I'm curious to know from your experience, how often do you see the patients that you interact with that likely should be or have been diagnosed with this anosognosia and really they don't identify their illness, so therefore their consent might not actually be a genuine consent? Okay. I am not a doctor. Right. In my really, opinion. Thank you. Anosognosia does not exist. It, it is a real thing when it comes to stroke victims, but when it comes to mental illness, it basically is a framework that people who want to increase opportunities for, for psychiatric treatment use as a justification of forcing people to have treatment that they do not consent to. It, 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 and I'm happy to talk with you more offline at any time about that, but there are people, um, there are a number of people who agree with me that that term is not a legitimate term when it comes to psychiatric issues. It is a very real condition when it comes to people who've suffered strokes. I appreciate that and I wouldn't appreciate your input, but um, I do think it's important to identify that it is a, a, a true diagnosis um, in the medical field. But I, again, I'm not a doctor. 
You're not a doctor, but I thank you for offering your opinion. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Representative Rader. Senator Amlar. Thank you, Madam Co-Chair. I just wanted to make a few comments and observations. I, I just want to first mention what a special committee we have in public health. We've been here for nine hours and, and we are making sure that we are there protecting people who cannot give consent, but at the same time having a conversation for the ones who need the treatment and they cannot give consent, can we find a way for them? And, and which is one of the largest committee, the people who are physically here and on Zoom for nine hours listening to this and also for the people who are here who are new to this committee, we have advocates who sit through the entire hearing just to be able to make sure that they stand up for what they believe in. So I, I just want us to recognize this moment and importance of this committee and, and, and arguably there's no other committee that does this kind of activity and this kind of emotion. So something to be proud of and to be thankful for. The second thing is that our experiences define how we see the world and, and I'm sorry about the experiences that you've had, but thank you, those experiences are helping a lot of people. So that's something that I wanted to recognize and, and appreciate in your case as well. And then I also am hopeful that we will find a solution, but then I lost a little bit of hope when you said that when Kathy Flaherty is gonna get some rest because you never get any rest. <laughs> so then we'll have to figure out when you're gonna get the rest. Um, I, I think um, just, uh, thought process for us to look at is in 2003 when we made this law it was the right time for that and there's a group of children who were born after that law has been made and this treatment was not an option because the diagnosis and the treatment and identification was not there and majority of the children were born after the law was made and we will have to think about that laws evolve and improve according to ground realities and is this a fault of the child? They were born in Connecticut because if they were in any other state for those specific group, they may have had the treatment without having to go through some of the hurdles. But I'm not asking for a solution. I'm just having you think about the fact that sometimes where you were born and what kind of laws you have would determine your impact on your families and, and so on. But these children were born after that law was made and this treatment, which has been recognized, is uh, is a treatment for them. And, and um, unfortunately they will have to go through the hurdles and, and unless they move to some other state because right now, perhaps we will not find an answer, but let's see if we can. And if they're not, then we'll just say that too bad. But I, I just wanted to thank everyone for the indulgence. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Co-Chair. And I would just like to echo my thanks to you, Ms. Flaherty, for staying here with us and also to the fellow members of the committee but thank you so much, and I look forward to further conversation with you on this and so many other issues. Thank you.